Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me today is my co-author, Glenn Hubbard. Glenn is Russell L. Carson Professor of Finance and Economics at Columbia, where he served as Dean of the Graduate School of Business. Glenn has also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury and Chair of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. We want to use these podcasts to discuss the economic effects of the coronavirus pandemic. We're recording this one on Friday, April 17th. How are you today, Glenn? Uh, great, Tony. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah, the virus epidemic, you know, continues to obviously provide a lot of struggle in health policy, but also for economics. I mean, as you and I have talked about many times, there are just so many things that are rich examples for teaching economics right now. Absolutely, there are. Um, and uh, as you know, we've been writing things up and posting them to our blog. We hope that that will be useful to instructors as they look for ways to bring discussing the, the pandemic into their classrooms. Absolutely. So I thought maybe we could start off today by talking about fiscal policy and about what kind of recovery we might see from the current recession. And as a little frame, you probably saw the speech that Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell gave at the Brookings Institution a few days ago. Um, he made a couple of interesting points. I just wanted to read briefly one thing that he said. Uh, so Jerome Powell said the following. He said, the critical task of delivering financial support directly to those most affected falls to elected officials who use their powers of taxation and spending to make decisions about where we as a society should direct our collective resources. So I thought that was interesting. So here we have a Fed chair, who of course is not an elected official, pointing to the fact that the recovery from the recession really depends on the elected officials, Congress and the president using their taxing and spending policies. So I was wondering if, if you agreed that this was a, rece a recession where fiscal policy rather than monetary policy might be more important. It's a great question, Tony, and I absolutely do agree with what uh, Chairman Powell said. In, in the past several recessions, uh, students and instructors will know that you know, monetary policy has played a big role. There's been a big focus on the Fed and on new programs. And, There'll be a focus on the Fed here too. I'll come back to that. But it's really got to be about fiscal policy. You know, what ails the economy at the moment in the pandemic shutdown isn't just liquidity issues, it's solvency issues. It's small and mid-sized businesses going out of business. It's people not having a job. Uh, it's not really the Fed's role to fix. So I think what Chairman Powell was saying is we need to use fiscal policy. And the question is how? In this pandemic, we've shut down the economy. And so one way fiscal policy might be able to help is obviously help workers who've lost their jobs, that's unemployment insurance, but also in helping businesses maintain their viability. The Congress uh, passed a law that would help small and mid-sized businesses continue and continue their employees. The Congress also provided money for assistance for some large firms 
that could have a, a very powerful network role in the economy, meaning if one of them failed, it would have a cascading effect. So fiscal policy is being used a lot, and it's worth looking at the numbers. You know, in the 08 crisis, there was a big debate about whether $700 billion for a fiscal package was too big or too small, and President Obama's advisors maybe pulled some punches because they were worried about the size. Congress in a week's time passed a two plus trillion dollar uh, economic recovery package. So the numbers have definitely moved up. And I use the word economic recovery uh, deliberately because as you and I've talked about, it's not really a stimulus where everybody's sitting at home. We're not trying to stimulate things. We're trying to imagine that the economy were actually going on uh, as usual. Now imagine, the Fed's role in all of this, to your question about fiscal and monetary policy. I think what Chairman Powell is saying, look, there are areas where we can help. So we intervened, we the Fed intervened in treasury markets, in uh, mortgage-backed securities, even in some corporate debt markets we've never intervened in before because we want to make those markets work better. But we don't think it's really up to us to decide who gets credit in the economy. That's a fiscal policy decision. However, the Fed chairman may be making it a little neater than it actually is. So if you look at the Fed programs, some of them are lending to uh, clients with credit risk, the high yield debt initiative, for example, uh, the so-called Main Street lending facility that would lend to small and mid-sized firms. Perfectly good idea to do that, but it's not devoid of credit risk. The taxpayers did give the Fed the money to do that as part of the CARES Act legislation, but the line between fiscal and monetary policy is not quite as bright as Chairman Powell is trying to suggest. And fortunately or unfortunately for the economy going forward, that blurring line is going to continue. Yeah, that, that's all very interesting. Certainly the mix of policy that we're looking at this time is very different than anything that we have um, seen before. There was another thing that Chairman Powell said at that Brookings talk that I thought was interesting and I was hoping to get, get your comment on it. And so he, he said, quoting him again, he's talking about what might be lying ahead of us. When the spread of the virus is under control, businesses will reopen and people will come back to work. There is every reason to believe that the economic rebound when it comes can be robust. So he seems to be talking there about what is sometimes called a V-shaped recession, where right now we're experiencing the, the downsweep of the V. Right? We've seen, as you mentioned, an enormous number of firms that have closed. Yesterday, we got word that over the past month, 22 million people have applied for unemployment insurance, uh, by far the most we've ever had. So we've certainly had a very rapid decline, the most rapid we've ever experienced. So the real question is, can we have a rapid recovery when the virus comes under control? Is it possible that we can get back relatively soon to where we were, say, in January or February before the pandemic really hit the United States. And I'm not really sure, you know, when the Queen of England said, we will meet again, it was very moving, but she didn't say quite when. 
And that's how I feel about what Chairman Powell said. Uh, the V shape, I think, might be better characterized as more like a Nike swoosh. So the, the downturn is clear. The slope of the upturn is going to be driven by as much as anything else, the pandemic itself and health policy responses. The problem with thinking of the economy as bouncing immediately back is, as you said, 22 million people have lost their jobs. A number of businesses have failed. You don't just turn on a dime. It will take a little bit of time for the economy to recover. And also, we may have social distancing for a while. One way to think about what Chairman Powell might mean is that he means that the derivative, you know, the, the change uh, in the economy will be robust immediately. And I think that's probably true. So if we imagine the reopening of the economy in the third and fourth quarters of the year, I could imagine uh, a recovery cascading. But getting back to the level where we were, I think it depends on the forecaster you look at, but might take a little bit of time. So I think he's right that obviously a reopening of the economy is positive for the economy. The exact slope will depend both on healthcare policy and on economic policy, possibly the Fed's own action. You know, there's one thing about how quickly we might recover um, that I've been thinking about. I've looked at some of the data that various people have put together on what was happening actually before we saw the formal declarations of emergency by mayors or governors and before in many places they ordered non-essential businesses closed. And it looks like the economy actually was, was turning down well before that. There's some interesting data, for instance, on OpenTable. You're probably familiar with, right? It's an online yep. reservation site where you can, even if you're the restaurant you go to is too small to have its own online way of making reservations, you can, you can make them through OpenTable. And um, it looks like open table reservations plunged well before um, the formal declarations of closing. For instance, I saw some data for Seattle, which of course was one of the, the cities that was hit hard early. And online reservations were already two thirds down before the declaration of emergency and, and restaurants were closed. And you see similar things if you look at box office receipts in various parts of the country or ridership on mass transit, you know, buses or subways for cities that have them. And it made me think that whatever mayors, governors, or President Trump may order, that in the end, the, the recovery really is critically dependent on how comfortable people feel. You know, do I really want to go out to the mall? Do I, do I really feel safe sitting in a, uh, a bus or, or in a, um, a theater or attending the sporting event. And part of that, of course, is medically driven, but I think it also has a psychological component to it as well. I, I completely agree with that. You know, I think even if we didn't have formal uh, regulations and restrictions from governors or mayors, as you say, I mean, how many people, I live in New York City, how many people would be excited about a crowded subway ride today? or going to a packed movie theater, or for that matter, sitting in a crowded university classroom or amphitheater. These are things that will take place over time. You know, in, in economics too, there's another aspect of this. We know that the generation that lived through the Great Depression of the 1930s 
had behavioral changes. They were more risk averse. Uh, they had higher saving rates. And you know, a question that economists and psychologists are already beginning to look at is, will there be changes once the pandemic itself has gone in our behavior about what we consume, like restaurants or buses or subways, uh, what we save, uh, the kinds of choices we make, uh, that definitely remains to be seen. One last thing I thought we could um, talk about before um, we move on is, as we already mentioned, uh, we had the news uh, yesterday that 22 million people have applied for unemployment insurance over just the last month, which really dwarfs anything we've seen before in such a short period of time, even going back to the Great Depression of the 1930s. And a number of news outlets yesterday, in fact, most of them who reported this story, said, well, this has wiped out all the jobs created since the Great Recession ended in 2009. In other words, if you take the last 10 years, they were saying the US economy had created 22 million jobs. And uh, we just lost in the last month, 22 million jobs. But if you actually look at the total number of jobs created since 2009, go on the BLS site and look at the data, the Bureau of Labor Statistics site, it's actually 288 million. In other words, it's more than 10 times the figure of 22 million. So what's the discrepancy? Where's that discrepancy come from? Well, it's because if you actually look at all the jobs that were created, you get the 288 million figure. If you look at just the net, if you say, okay, we had 288 million jobs that were created by businesses over the past 10 years, and 266 million of those then disappeared as companies went out of business or they contracted or whatever, that's where you get that net figure of 22 million jobs. So I, I'm not just being pedantic, although my students will tell you that being pedantic is what I do best. It's kind of <laughs> a superpower. I'm not just being pedantic by pointing out that there are an enormous number of jobs created in the economy over such a long period of time. Because what I think it shows us is just how flexible and dynamic the U.S. economy and the U.S. labor market are how resourceful workers are in seeking out jobs, you know, sometimes getting additional training if their current job has disappeared, and how willing uh, firms are to create new jobs. So if we wanna be optimistic about what's likely to happen, it's always good to keep in the back of our minds, I think, that that kind of dynamism in the US economy makes a speedy recovery seem more possible, even if some firms end up permanently closing their doors and some jobs in certain sectors may not come back. I completely agree with that. And I don't think it's pedantic at all. I think it actually makes a critical point that obviously we make in our textbook, but I think students struggle sometimes to get, which is there's a big difference between gross flows of hiring and job destruction and, and net flows, as you say. And we live in a very dynamic economy that be putting aside the virus creates lots of jobs and destroys lots of jobs regularly, whether it's a good time or recession or a virus or no virus. And that's actually the, the sign of a very healthy economy. It also points the way toward recovery. So if we move, as we hope we will soon, from a period of an economic shutdown to a more open economy, 
what's the best way to get that robust job creation back? It would be to not gum up the system. You know, a number of people have been writing that we need to take a hard look at regulations that we have on business, how easy it is to start a business or expand a business. You know, the United States for years has talked to developing countries about the so-called doing business indicators that the World Bank collects, <clears throat> but we could do a better job here with businesses. So I, I'm optimistic as you are that I think if we do the right thing, we'll see it come back. Great, I thought maybe we could uh, turn now to a micro issue. So I, I wanted to ask you a, a personal question, Glenn. Where the heck did all the toilet paper go? You know, it's a great question, Tony. My wife and I were coming back from a long trip through India and got the message uh, from our younger son that there's no toilet paper in New York. And I said, what do you mean no toilet paper? From the airplane, I did manage to triage some from walmart.com. But putting that aside, why is there no toilet paper? Well, interestingly, in textbooks and in class discussions, we all talk about the problem of a bank run. And there's actually a good relationship between a classic bank run and what's happening with toilet paper. So in a bank run, you are worried that uh, a bank is in trouble. You see a line outside the door of people trying to get their money back. And then you start to worry that maybe your bank is in trouble and another bank is in trouble. And we all share that information. Uh, and we all try to convert our uh, bank deposits to cash. And that becomes hard to do. In the toilet paper market, we see lines, right? You see a story on the news that says, oh my gosh, the store sold out. And you think, well, maybe there's not enough toilet paper. So maybe I should go to my store and buy all the toilet paper. And then soon it's off the shelf. Now, of course, we all know that there's not a toilet paper shortage. There is plenty of toilet paper in the country. And just as the Federal Reserve is the lender of last resort for banks and breaks a bank run, as soon as it became clear that suppliers were certainly supplying toilet paper, uh, the run largely went away. But it is a, a really interesting example of what can happen when people try to infer from uh, behavior at one store or one bank to behavior for the economy as a whole, which may not be right. Yeah, I think that the analogies between the bank runs and the, the great toilet paper run of 2020, as we may look back on it, are, are pretty strong. One thing that I think about is that confidence matters a lot. There, you probably remember there's a great scene in the movie Mary Poppins, which I think I watched 472 times when my kids were younger. I, there was a, a time at which I could probably recite most of the dialogue of Mary Poppins. But there's a, a scene in a bank where the little boy um, has yes. tuppence, you know, two yes. British cents. And the, um, the, the president of the bank is explaining to him the wonders of compound interest and how much that tuppence will grow if only he will leave it in the bank. And the little boy, of course, wants to spend it. So they get into a, a, a tussle as the little boy tries to get his tuppence back. And he ends up yelling, give me back my money. I want my money. You can't have my money. And instantly, all the people who are in the bank at the windows, they turn and they look and they say, oh no, there's something wrong with the bank. And they rush to the teller's windows and insist on getting all their money back. And then an enormous crowd builds outside 
the the bank and they they, they rush through the doors and whatever uh, trying to trying to get their money out and obviously it's uh you know exaggerated for comic effect but it does get to the point that really what was in those days keeping banks solvent was the notion that people had confidence that if they turned up at the bank the bank would be able to give them their money and once they had that confidence they didn't really need to take their money out right it's better sitting in the bank than it is sitting under their mattress or someplace and as you pointed out, it was very similar with toilet paper. I mean, most of the time we assume that what we buy at the supermarket is there waiting for us. But really it's, our, it's really our confidence that that's true that keeps us from rushing down and saying, oh my goodness, exactly. you know, I've gotta, I've gotta get that um, toilet paper before, uh, before it all disappears. In effect, what you're doing by doing that is something similar to what used to happen uh, when we had bank runs. Of course, these days we don't really see commercial bank runs because the Fed is there to to lend to banks if they have short-term problems with with cash, and we've insured deposits in banks. So, unlike in 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 England, uh, in the time Mary Poppins was set, uh, people don't have to worry that the bank will fail and they'll never get their money back. It, it's a very similar sort of thing in those days that effectively what would happen with a bank run is people would take the inventory of currency that had been in banks and they take it home. So it's really kind of inefficient, right? It's more efficient if we let currency sit in ATM machines and in tellers drawers and whatever. The same thing with toilet paper. Effectively what happened in the great toilet paper run was we took the inventory that usually sits on the shelves of supermarkets and we brought it home. And once again, it's more efficient to allow um, Walmart and the supermarkets and so on to hold that inventory for us. And we only dip in and, and uh, buy what we need when we need it. But that depends critically on, on confidence. And as you say, it looks like confidence is being restored that, um, for a while there, you would go on Amazon and they would say, sure, you can buy toilet paper. Delivery date is October 10th. <laughs> and, now, and now they'll say, um, you know, we can get it to you in the next few days. So I think that's one of the interesting applications that we have of using what we already know about economics. In this case, what tends to happen in, in banking systems when people lose confidence and applying it to an instance uh, of what we're seeing today, that um, you know, our analysis of bank runs can be used to understand what's happening um, or what was happening there for a while with toilet paper. Okay, well, I think we can maybe wrap this up. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, many of us have been able to do is we've had a bit more time to read uh, than we did before. Are there, are there books? Uh, that you've been reading, Glenn, that you'd like to mention? Well, I actually picked up again E.M. Forster's A Room with a View because uh, it's total escapism. Uh, and as well, uh, Old Jeeves and Worcester Stories by oh, love those Woodhouse uh, because they're, you know, wonderful escapism. Oh, yes, I, I love those. Um, uh, P.G. Woodhouse was just a genius. Uh, turned out some some laugh out loud funny things. 
I've actually gone back and I'd read it before years ago, but I, I've been rereading John Barry's book on the great influenza pandemic oh, of wow. 1918, 1919. And it's very interesting. And maybe to, um, uh, there's kind of a, a pessimistic note in there and also maybe an op optimistic note. The pessimistic note is that um, the first wave of the influenza pandemic came in the spring of 1918. And then during the summer, as typically happens with influenza, it died down. And then it came roaring back in the fall, uh, actually much worse. The, the, the death rates peaked um, sometime in the, in, the, in the late fall of 1918. So that's the kind of pessimistic cautionary uh, conclusion from Barry's book that, you know, we have to make sure that we don't have that second spike uh, in dealing with the corona pandemic. But the optimistic thing is that eventually the um, influenza um, pandemic um, fizzled out. And what happened seems to be that the virus mutated. So it was this extremely virulent influenza when it hit in 1918 and then into 1919. By 1920, Barry thinks that um, it had mutated so that it was still there and in fact remained at some level for decades thereafter in the US. But it was at a much more bearable level with much, much lower uh, mortality rates. I've read a little bit about um, people speculating about what might happen with the coronavirus. And there are some people who think that that's a possibility this time as well, that um, I don't understand the epidemiology or the, um, you know, the biology of this, but apparently there is a tendency for these kinds of diseases to mutate away from being overly lethal. And it may have something to do with you know, evolutionary terms. There's an optimal amount of um, death that you cause if the death rates are too high and then um, the virus tends to fizzle out so that um, that gives us a little bit of hope that maybe one of the things that will aid us in addition to the hope for vaccine and maybe some therapies that um, are being developed that maybe we'll be fortunate enough and the coronavirus will mutate in a way that it may still be there but it won't be as lethal as it's been. Well, gosh, I sure hope so, Tony. That is a very hopeful note uh, and, a, and a great story to tell. Yeah, anybody who is interested in that 1918 pandemic, Barry's book, which I don't have in front of me, so I don't remember the exact title, um, is well worth reading because he does quite an exhaustive account of what went on, the measures that were taken, and so on. Okay, well, um, why don't we wrap this up then? And let me remind our listeners uh, of our new blog, HubbardandO'BrienEconomics.com. Hubbard, Hubbard O'BrienEconomics.com, no and. and. You may well be listening to this podcast uh, from the blog, in which case you don't need, the, you don't need to be told uh, what the address is, but um, I thought I'd mention it anyway. We've already posted several updates related to the pandemic. And we're trying to have new posts at least every few days. So please check back. Or you could subscribe and we'll send you email alerts whenever we have a new post or a new podcast or, or any other new material. 
So thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard O'Brien Economics podcast. Until then, please stay safe. <laughs>